Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Why doesn't Christianity seem to work? I would submit to you today that it does work, but we're not working at it. And we're not living it out as we should as Christians. We honor those today who serve our community. And I would dare say their jobs would be easier if Christians acted like Christians. I would dare say we would be ashamed today at the number of people who are on church rolls and who call themselves Christians and who say when they die they're going to heaven. But the police have to be called to a home for a domestic dispute. Because once they get inside the walls of that home, church membership and Christianity has no validity in their home. And thus, people walk around saying, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want any part of it. That's not for me. And I want to submit that it can work and that it does work. And so let's look at the problem of nominal Christianity. And I want us to begin in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. And we're talking about the problem of nominal Christianity. Words like backslidden and carnal and fleshly may not be politically correct. They, they may not be vogue, but they're certainly not vague words. We know what they mean. When a person is carnal or acts like a person that's not saved, it, it's a person that has become fascinated with a lifestyle that is not consistent with our faith. And they are at best nominal. Webster defines nominal as existing or being something in name or form only. Existing or being something in name or form only. In other words, there's little substance to back up the claim. There's little commitment to back up that initial decision. You know the story of the book of Joshua. God's people have taken the promised land. Joshua stands up and says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they all say, oh, that's us too. And several times they say, you got it. We're going to serve the Lord. And in Joshua 24, 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. I thought about that verse. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua. They served the Lord while there was somebody there to watch over them and to keep count and to make sure they were behaving. Now let me ask you, do you think differently about the stoplight if you see a police car than if you don't? Do you think differently about the stop sign that you kind of glide through at 10 miles an hour 
If you see some blue lights sitting up, coming over the hill, yes, you do, don't you? Why? Because you're just like the people at the time of Joshua. You're going to serve as long as you're aware somebody is watching you. But, like the people in Joshua's time, when we believe that nobody's watching, and when there's nobody to hold us accountable, and when there's nobody to keep tabs on us, we go back to our old ways. Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. Judges, just turn a couple of pages to Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. They served all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders, those that had been picked by Joshua. But in Judges chapter 2 and verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. That's exactly what it said in Joshua 24. Who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. I would submit to you that we are living in a day, a postmodern, post-Christian culture, with a generation that does not know the Lord, nor the work that has been done for them. Now let's apply this nationally and politically. We have generations of kids coming up who don't know that somebody fought for their freedom. They couldn't tell you where D-Day happened. They don't understand, couldn't tell you the years when the Korean War happened. They understand very little about the Vietnam War. They don't know why soldiers enlist and why anybody would want to leave the comfort of America and enlist and serve at low pay in the military. They don't know because somehow in our education system and in our homes, we have forgotten to teach our children their heritage. That's politically. But spiritually, the same thing can happen. We can assume that they get our faith by osmosis. That somehow by seeing a Bible in our home or by us saying the blessing at a meal, that our faith transfers to the generations. But a study of Scripture will show you it is always the third generation that begins to rebel against God. There's Joshua and then the generation that followed Joshua, and then there arose, third generation, a generation that did not know the Lord. Somehow, faith went from firsthand real experience to a knowledge of somebody with a firsthand real experience to an unawareness of any changed life. What happens to the third generation is the second generation never has a walk of their own. And that's why Grandma and Grandpa have the faith, and the sons and daughters, they're kind of there, and they kind of acknowledge God, but then their generation that follows them, they're not interested because they haven't seen the real thing at home. They've seen it in Grandma and Grandpa, but they don't see it in Mom and Dad. And so in three short generations, it's over. It's over. We have seen that happen in our culture in the last 60 years. A continual downhill slide in our culture. In fact, 
Some people say that religious movements have three stages. A man, a movement, a monument, and machinery. We have monuments today, great churches, great buildings, but we are fast moving toward machinery because we've lost the sense of urgency of the movement, of touching people's lives with the gospel. The Lausanne Congress of 1980 said that there were five types of nominal Christians. Number one, those who attend church regularly but have no personal relationship with Christ. When you're talking about nominal Christians, and this is the problem, there are people who attend church regularly but they have no personal relationship with Christ. They can give you some pat answers. They can quote a couple of scriptures maybe, but as far as personalizing their faith, they have never come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where they've acknowledged that they're a sinner, they've confessed their need of a Savior, and they've invited Christ to come into their heart. Secondly, those who attend church regularly, but for cultural reasons only. Now, this has changed a lot in the last 20 years. I remember growing up in the 50s and 60s. That was 19, not 18. uh, 50s and 60s. I I remember growing up in the 50s and 60s, and and people would not join the church that my parents went to and would join the First Baptist Church in town because it was socially and professionally proper to do so. You, You went there because you made connections. Now people move to town and start a business and they don't join any church because they're not interested in making any connections that way. But people can use the church for cultural reasons. They can use it to help their business. They can use it to meet people, to connect for a lot of reasons. Number three, those who attend church only for major church festivals and ceremonies. Christmas, Easter, baptisms, weddings, and funerals. I remember the first time I heard Vance Havner speak it was on an Easter Sunday. And he got up, and the first thing out of his mouth on Easter Sunday was, Merry Christmas. I want to be the first to say Merry Christmas to you because some of you will not be back in church until Christmas. So let me be the first to tell you, Merry Christmas. And you say, ooh, that's not politically correct. Well, it's true. There are some people that the only time they come to church is at holidays because family's in and it's the right thing to do to go to church in the holidays and you go to church for a baptism because that's right to do or a wedding or a funeral. And by the way, it is a sad sign of our culture that we don't go to funerals anymore. Rarely do you ever fill a church or a room with a funeral. We've forgotten, and listen, when a society forgets to stop and respect those who have died, they have no respect for the living either. We are a culture because of abortion on one end and a try for euthanasia on the other end that life has no meaning anymore. Therefore, events in our lives have no significance anymore. Number four, they hardly ever attend church but maintain a church relationship for reasons of security, emotional or family ties, or tradition. They attend church for 
other reasons when they attend. Number five, they have no relationship to any particular church and never attend, but consider themselves to believe in God. These are what one writer calls external constituents. External constituents. They don't attend any church, but they have no relationship with a church, but they consider themselves to believe in God. Now, let me, let me apply this in the public service realm for just a second. You're not registered to vote, but you want to comment on what every elected official does. Hello? You're not registered, you're not going to vote, but you've got an opinion about who needs to be president and who needs to be sheriff and who needs to be senator and who needs to be congressman and who needs to be this and who needs to be that. Everybody's got an opinion, but nobody ever takes their responsibility seriously. But so I'm an American. I'm glad I live in a free country. Put your hand over your heart, say the pledge, don't take under God out of the pledge, but you're not going to do anything to make sure it stays under God. That's an uh uh-oh, not an amen. You see, there are people who attend church. Oh, yeah, I go. But they don't have a relationship with God. But then the other end of the spectrum, they don't have any relationship with the church, but they consider themselves to have a relationship with God. And by the way, that group is growing the fastest. If I were an outside observer and I were called to do an audit on church memberships, it wouldn't take me long to figure out that Christianity is not working for many people. We're, we're kind of like the children of Israel. You know, we're blessing God and praising God. Oh, we've been delivered from Egypt. We've been delivered from bondage. We're out here. Hallelujah. Man, this is great. Look, food's falling from the sky. And before you know it, we're going, you know, can we get something else to eat? And they started complaining about Moses and Moses' leadership. And they complain about this and they complain about that. And they gripe about this and, and they griped about that. They didn't like Moses. They grumbled against him. And they didn't like the manna. And so God gave them meat. And they had so much meat that it was running out their nostrils. They got sick of it. You, you see, I know that the early group of the children of Israel were Baptist. Because you couldn't make them happy. They wanted to go back to... Now, can you imagine spending time with people that want to go back to Egypt, to slavery, and not only that, we want to go back, read your Bible, to onions and garlic and leeks. Whoa! Let's all stand around and sing, breathe on me. That's where they want to go back to. And you say, well, that's ancient history. Oh, no, I'm convinced that there are people in our churches today that are just as bad. They complain because something doesn't go their way. They they want church light. They want worship that doesn't require anything of them. They want to have a false sense of security that this world gives, but no security that God gives. They go through the motions rather than laying their lives on the altar. And God says the same thing all the way through the Bible. There is a faithless majority that will come under judgment because of their faithlessness. And there is a faithful remnant that is always there to remind us that God has a future for his people. So there's a problem. And if God 
will judge Israel in the Old Testament. Those of us who live under grace, those of us who live with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, cannot think for one minute that he will not judge us unless we step up to the plate and do a better job at what we call Christianity. Now, second point. This sermon only has two points, so we should be out by 1.30. What's the solution? What has to change? If my Christianity is going to work, if I'm going to pass the test to be a New Testament Christian, what has to change? By the way, there are three people sitting in your seat right now. Three people in your seat right now. There's the person you are at this moment. There's the person you could be for evil. And there's the person you could be for good. Who you are right now, that's who's in that seat. Who you could be for evil. And who you could be for good. And the choices we make and the commitments we make and the life that we live determines whether our life will go down a path of evil and uselessness or go down a path of good and godliness. There's some changes that have to be made. Vance Havner said, most church members live so far below the standard, you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. We are so subnormal that when we become normal, people think we're abnormal. Have you, have you ever tried to keep a new Christian away from some church members so they don't rub off on them? You, you know, I mean, somebody comes in and they get saved, and they get excited about the Lord. Man, this is great. I didn't know life could be this good. Well, don't meet the people in that class over there because you do not want to be around them because they got over theirs. I mean, they're living a subnormal life. I love to be around people who are normal, who enjoy the Lord and are excited about God and believe in what God's doing. And even when tough times come, they hold on to the fact that God is real and God's Word is true. And they understand that the Bible admits defeat, but it never assumes it. You see, there is a much more to the Christian life. We are in Christ. That's the realm of our spiritual experience. But Christ is in us. That's the reality of our spiritual experience. God in us. It doesn't have to be this roller coaster, up and down ride, hot and cold, on and off. Here six months, gone three. Here one Sunday, gone four. It can be a consistency of life that makes a difference. And when people look at us, they say, you know, that that stuff must work. It must be real. I am amazed at the Muslims who will stop whatever they are doing, roll out their little cloth, kneel down, and pray toward a God who will not hear their prayers. And yet, you ask Christians, how often do you pray a day And most would be embarrassed to answer. Why are people committed more to lies than God's people are to truth? Why have we been so duped and deceived? And why have we accepted such a watered-down, 
version of what Christianity is supposed to be. And so I want to leave you with three words this morning that need to become a part of our vocabulary and our thought process if we're going to make it in this world. Word number one is revelation. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in the Word. He has revealed himself in Christ. And he has revealed himself in the Holy Spirit. And while God's truth has its origin in heaven, it needs to be at home in our hearts. And so I want you to walk very quickly with me through a few verses of the New Testament. Turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is what God says we have to do. This is God's revelation of what has happened in our lives and what we must do as a result of what has happened in our lives. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him. Now, that's a fact. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I've been buried and I've been raised. I've been raised so I can walk in newness of life. Now I'm to consider, to count, to reckon myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, For you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and and the outcome, eternal life. Let me just give you two other verses to write down for sake of time. 1 John 2, 14. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which we'll look at tonight. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. It is a sad fact to me that many Christians have union with Christ, but not communion with Christ. Christ died for us so that he could live in us. He wants to live his life in us and through us. And the revelation of God is, we don't have to be like we were. We can change. God's Holy Spirit has been given to us. God's work was done for us at the cross. And we can be different people. Not weird, not odd, but the normal Christian life. Second word is experience. Any experience not built on revelation can be misleading. And any revelation that does not live itself out in experience is dead. And so I want to give you two statements. You're going to have to chew on these for a while. This is homework. Doctrine is not a measure of experience, but it's mold. Doctrine is not a measure of experience, but it's mold. You see, they have to work together. Second statement, experience is not the standard of truth, 
but it's appropriation of truth. Experience is not the standard of truth, but it's appropriation of truth. Doctrine is not the measure of experience, but it's mold. You don't measure doctrine by your experiences. You measure your experiences by doctrine. And experience is not the standard of truth, but it's the appropriation of truth. Now, what that means is simply this. God didn't set up some hierarchy structure where only a few, only the elite can have the revelation of God and then walk in the full experience of what God has for them. God set it up for all of us to have that, to have an abounding and an abundant life. Here's the problem. Somewhere, we got lost between Easter and Pentecost. And we're living in between. We're on the right side of justification of sins by faith. But we haven't gotten on the right side of sanctification and holy living. We're on the right side of pardon for sin, but we're on the wrong side of power. We're still living like the Holy Spirit hasn't come. We're still living like we got to gut it out and work it out and flesh it out instead of depending on the Holy Spirit of God to empower us and to reveal to us out of His Word how He wants us to live. And the greatest day of our life will be when we kneel down before God and say, God, I can't do this, but I choose to believe that you can do this through me. And I believe and I receive. I want everything you have for me and for my life. And the greatest day you'll ever have is when you surrender to God And in your personal experience and personal walk, you say to God, God, with everything I know and with everything I understand, I choose to want everything you want for my life. It's liberating. It'll set you free. One last word. Service. Now let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. When Jesus came to live in you, what did he come to do? When Jesus came, not a trick question, when Jesus came to live in you, what did he come to do? He came to live in you? That's the answer. He came to live in you. The day you got saved, and the day you admitted that you were a sinner and that you needed a Savior, the day that you asked Christ to forgive you of your sins, you knew you were a sinner, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, that it is of faith and of grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. The day that you admitted that, the day that you confessed that to your parents or to your teacher or to your youth minister or your children's minister or your pastor or to a missionary or whoever you said it to, the day that you acknowledge that and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, he came to live in you. Christ. Through his Holy Spirit. And so he came to live in you to make you like him. And what was he? He was a servant. 
Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a servant. You want to know how Christianity is going to work in your life, and you want to know how people are going to see Christianity in you, you knock yourself out serving people and serving God. And people will see a difference in you. Because we are so self-absorbed in our society. We're so eaten up with what somebody going to do for me, what somebody going to get for me, what somebody owes me, that if the church and if the body of Christ would just start serving God and serving others, people would see a difference in us and want to know why we're not so eaten up with self. And we would be given an incredible platform to tell people why we're different. This society is moving increasingly toward self-centeredness. At the same time, the church needs to be rapidly advancing toward the servant heart. And if Christianity is going to work in our lives, it will work itself out in the little things of life when we serve other people. And by the way, here's how you know if you're a servant. Are you ready? How you act when you're treated like one. Because if you bow up when somebody treats you like a servant, you're not a servant. You see, you know you're a servant when you respond like a servant when you're treated like one. Jesus was a servant. He washed feet. And if Jesus was not too good to wash the feet of sinful disciples, I'm not too good to serve other sinners. Even if they never say thank you, even if they never pat me on the back, even if they never even acknowledge it. Look for ways this week to serve somebody, to do something without being asked, to help somebody that cannot pay you back in return, that may never acknowledge that you've done it. Look for a way to be a servant. And when somebody asks you, why'd you do that? Then you've got a platform to say, because Christ changed my life. And I serve the greatest servant that ever lived, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.